You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Joshua chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northwards to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon towards the sunrise from Baalgad toward uh, below Mount Hermon to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephophmaim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I've commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jane. Impressive work. There's some tough names there. (laughs) All right. Well, when I was a kid, we didn't have a Christmas tree. We had a Christmas string. Uh, on Christmas Eve, instead of putting all the presents under the tree, my parents would uh, roll out some string. They'd tie it to each of our beds and then in the next morning we'd get up and we'd follow this string and every few metres there would be another present and we'd keep walking down and around, upstairs, downstairs, over the bookshelf, under the bookshelf, under the table, all of these things, and we'd find these presents along the way until we kind of got to the grand finale and there was a BMX outside or something like that. It was fantastic. It was lots of fun. Now, I know that I've used that story before. I do apologise for our regular listeners. Uh, I've worked out that I've used it uh, two other times, as recently as January 2021. But I used it again today because it feels like the perfect uh, illustration for what we're talking about today. You see, today's passage is about God's people opening the presence that God has for them. We're at the halfway point of the book of Joshua, and this is where the book takes a very big shift. The first half of Joshua has been all about God's people coming to the land. They, chapter 1 to 5, we see them preparing to enter the land. Then chapter 6 to 12, they, they take the land and they win lots of battles. It's very uh, dramatic. There's lots of great characters, as heroic as spectacular miracles and epic moments. But now things slow down and over the next 10 chapters or so, we see this description of how the land was divvied up among God's people and settled. Uh, As you may know, Israel was made up of 12 tribes named after the 12 sons of Jacob and each one of these tribes was allotted some land except for the Levites. Now, as we read this, it might not seem terribly exciting to us. Most of these chapters are just devoted to long lists of place names and boundary markers, and that can feel a bit dull. But if you were a Jewish person reading this at the time, these chapters would have been so special because they speak to their own inheritance, their place in God's plans, 
and God's grace towards them. In fact, Robert Hubbard, the writer, uh, suggests that these chapters are actually the very heart of the book because the whole book has been all about how will they get the land, how will God fulfil his promises, and now we're seeing that happen. And so there's, these chapters sing for people or David Firth imagines a, a 3D map and you, you sort of trace all of the, uh, the lines between the cities and the boundary markers and so on. It becomes this living environment. This, this is God's people following the string and opening the presence that God has for them. And as you see on your notes, you'll see there's actually a significant area. You'll see how the land was uh, divvied up around the, the, the tribes. Now, we're not going to go through these chapters verse by verse. I mean, <laughs> there's 10 chapters. But uh, what I do want to do is pick out some of the big themes that emerge. And the first one is the faithfulness of God. God had promised his people the land, and these chapters are the proof that he keeps his promises. See, right at the start of the book, when Joshua was appointed leader, God promised to give him the land. Chapter 1, verse 4, All the land shall be your territory. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And we're seeing God work to make that happen. He's fought for his people. Chapter 10, And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So everything in this book is based on God's promises, on his faithfulness. God promised to Joshua that he would get the land, and now we see that he's done it. But, of course, these promises stretch back much further than Joshua, don't they? You see, all the way back in Genesis, God had promised a guy called Abraham that he would give him this land. Genesis 17, I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Then God repeated that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, Genesis 26, to you and your offspring, I'll give you all these lands. And then he reaffirmed that to Isaac's son, Jacob, Genesis 35, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And so really when Joshua comes along, he's just inheriting all of these promises. He's picking them up midstream. God has been making these promises for hundreds of years. Now when you think about it like that, when you see the great stretch and the scope of these promises, you realise how special this part of Scripture is. As Hubbard puts it, for so long, Israel could only ponder that land as a far-off, enchanted, mythical, never-never land, a place to be sweetly savoured with the imagination but not seen with the eyes. Now, however, they're finally reaching and owning it after nearly seven centuries of waiting and imagining. I just love how it's described at the end of chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So we see in these chapters that God is faithful. But we also see the faithful obedience of God's people. David first suggests that uh, the whole idea behind all of the book of Joshua is the question of covenant faithfulness. God had made a covenant, an agreement with his people Israel. He had made promises 
and he had kept them, but he had also asked his people to be obedient. That was their part of uh, the promise, uh, part of the covenant. And so this is the big question. Will they be obedient? And really to be obedient for them was to be trusting, to trust and obey. See, God had promised to fight for them and to open up the land for them, but still they had to act, they had to actually go and claim that land. And so the, the great act of obedience was an act of faith. Would they trust that God would open up the land for them? Would they possess their possessions, as one writer puts it? God has put it on offer. It's all there for them to take, to claim. Now, will they grab a hold of it? Will they, will they unwrap the presents that God has given them? Now, perhaps that sounds kind of obvious. Of course you would. But we know that actually there's a lot of things working against this. We know that they face fearsome foes and great nations who intimidating nations who could have destroyed them. And God had said in advance, he said, look, when you get to the land, you're going to face these nations, but don't worry, I'll clear the way for you. I'll defeat them for you. That was God's promise. But we've seen that the previous generation, before Joshua's generation, they didn't believe that, did they? We're seeing now in Numbers 13, they came to the edge of the land. They were there right on the, they were on the cusp of receiving God's promises. And Moses sent out some spies to check out the land to see what it was like. And they came back terrified. Oh, this place is beautiful, but the cities are fortified. They're big and the people are strong and they're, they're powerful and they're like giants. We felt like grasshoppers in front of them and they all freaked out and they turned around and they, they wanted to push all the way back to Egypt. They were, they were too scared. They didn't trust that God could defeat these nations. And so they didn't receive the promise. They didn't obey because they didn't trust. Because they didn't trust. They didn't see and experience God's grace. You see, if God was, if they were to experience these promises to be fulfilled, they had to trust that God would make it so. And so then there is this question, what will this generation, what will the next generation, what will Joshua's generation be like? Will they trust or will they turn away as well? Well, thankfully we've seen all through this book that they have stepped in in faith. They have obeyed God's instructions because they trust that God is with them, that God can give them this land. We've seen them do it in battle through the first half of the book. And now in the second half, we see them continue to do that. You see, while they'd claimed much of the land, they didn't yet occupy all of it. There remains very much, uh, yet very much land to possess, chapter 13. Uh, so basically they kind of placed down a flag, they'd won some battles, but they now needed to settle these lands and to occupy them and to build up their cities. And we're told that they did this. Chapter 21, they took possession of the land and they settled there. They trusted and obeyed God, and so they claimed his promises. So this was necessary. As Firth puts it, God works through the obedience of his people. Obedience was required from Joshua, and it was through that obedience that Yahweh provided the land. They grab hold of his promises. And this attitude, this, this heart, is best exemplified by a guy called Caleb, you might remember him. He was one of the spies who went into the land back in Numbers 13. He and Joshua were the only ones of all of these spies who didn't freak out. Uh, when everyone else was worrying about how big the people were and how scary they were, 
Caleb was it. He says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. He was confident in God and his promises. Numbers 14, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. He says, don't, don't fear the people of the land, for they're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us, so don't fear them. As David Jackman puts it rather neatly, while, while everyone else's eyes were on the giants, Caleb's eyes were on the Lord. He trusted God. And so he was willing to obey him. He was there to claim God's promises. He's always been a man of faith, and we see that again now. You see, because of his faith back in Numbers, God had said that when the people did claim the land, he would get a special plot of land within it, a special place that he could make his home in. And so now in chapter 14, he comes to Joshua and says, look, I've come to claim God's promise. He believes that God can give him this land, even though there's a couple of things that count against it. First of all, there's his age. Caleb was about 40 when he went on the spy mission, so by now he's about 85. But he's not worried. Chapter 14, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. I mean, you're only as old as you feel, right? And, and Caleb feels young because he trusts God's strength. He has God's strength with him. But still, to get this plot of land that God has for him, he'll have to defeat the Anakim. And this is where we see the poetry of this moment. The Anakim, you see, were this, the people who most terrified the spies back in numbers. They were the dudes that made the spies feel like grasshoppers. That's because it's most likely that these guys were giants. Bit of a backstory here. We're told that they're the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. Uh, the Nephilim were like fallen angels who had come down to earth and had started having children with uh, human women. It's a whacked story. You can read about it in Genesis 6. <laughs> You're all going to read that tonight. But, but it's these guys who are in Caleb's land. He, he wants this land, but these guys are in the way. He's going to have to overcome these giants. But, of course, he's not afraid. He wasn't afraid of them back then when he was a young man and he's not now as an old man. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And so it proves. In chapter 15 we're told, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahiman and Telmai, the descendants of Anak. As one writer puts it, Caleb trusts God to fulfil his word and thus receives what is promised. What a dude. Like, what an amazing guy. What a man, a man of faith. As David Jackman puts it, faith is a simple, uncluttered trust that God will be all that he declared himself to be and would thus keep the promises that he had made. That's what Caleb has, a simple, uncluttered trust that God says something and then he does it. And so because of that trust, Caleb steps forward in trusting obedience. God has said something, he believes it will happen, and so he walks into it.
He claims the promises that God has for him. He unwraps the presents. So we see these great examples of the faithful obedience of God's people. But we also, unfortunately, see that there are certain things that they leave undone. And this sows the seeds for later problems. And you might remember that God was very clear in his instructions to his people that they should drive the Canaanites out of the land and destroy them. We thought about that in depth last week. What the, we thought about, is that fair? Is that moral? We, under, we really unpack that. If you'd like to know more about that, just uh, go to the podcast from last week. But you remember that these people were deeply opposed to God and to God's people and, and that actually they were tools of the devil's work, that God, the devil was constantly trying to sabotage and destroy God's plans and so to do that, he wanted to either exterminate the Israelites or infiltrate them to, to kind of corrupt them from within and to turn them to false worship. So God's instructions to his people were really clear. We need to drive them out. You need to destroy them because I, I don't want you to learn what they, uh, their religion. I don't want you to compromise. As one writer puts it, spiritual emergency required violent holiness. The cancer of their false worship would surely infect Israel unless the most radical surgery removed it. And as we've seen, God's people did do that for the most part. You see, as we read along, we see that they leave some of the people behind. Chapter 13, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Chapter 16, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. And this would have significant consequences. You see, part of the land that they didn't claim properly belonged to the Philistines. And if you know the rest of the Old Testament, you know that the Philistines are like the bad guys. They're constantly coming to uh, haunt Israel. They become their nemesis. And so there was this moment here where they could have driven them out, but they failed to take it. But it's not just the physical threat of these nations, it was the spiritual threat from, all the na- from those around them. See, God was worried that the people of the land would infiltrate and become a snare to his people, and so it proved. Psalm 106, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. In fact, we're told they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So God's people left things undone, and this had devastating consequences. Why? Why didn't they do this? How did this happen? I think as we read it, it's ultimately down to a lack of faith. See, when we read some of these descriptions, it's striking. It's not that they just don't take some of the land. It's that they can't take it, chapter 15. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out so that the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah. Could not drive them out. How's that work? I mean, hadn't God promised that he would drive these people out? Well, yes, he had. He had promised to work for them, but only if they believed that he would. 
And without that faith, without that trust, God would not work for them. This whole thing is perhaps best seen in the people of Joseph, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 17, they come to Joshua complaining that the land they've been given is too small. So Joshua basically answers them by saying, look, if you want more, go and get them. You're big enough. You can take them on. And then they come back and say, well, actually, the problem is that these Canaanites have chariots of iron. As we saw last week, the the chariots were like the tanks of the ancient world. They're very intimidating. So they're worried that we won't be able to beat these guys. But, of course, that shows a lack of faith because God had explicitly promised his people that he would overcome even the most fearsome enemies. Deuteronomy 20, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. But they don't trust that. And so because of that, they don't see his power. David Jackman likens God's power. It's like having an electric grid. It's all there. The power is there. But until you plug in the kettle, you're not going to see that power. So in the same way, God's power is available for these tribes, for Manasseh and Ephraim, but they have to actually trust that it's there. They have to access that. And so because they lack that faith, they don't act. And because they don't act, they don't receive all of God's promises. They don't see God work for them. They leave some of the presents still wrapped. And their story reveals an important principle. As David Firth puts it, God always fulfills his promises, but God's people sadly do not always live fully in them. Or as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, we will see little of God's power until we venture out into the way of obedience, until we trust his promise enough to walk in it. So until we we actually really rely on God, we won't see his power. We won't fully experience his promises. And this got me thinking. How often do we fail to experience the true riches of God's promises for us because we don't believe that they're there because of a lack of faith? How many of the presents are we leaving wrapped up? See, God has many great promises for us that he offers us. The first and great promise is life with God. See, humanity was made to live with God. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have this beautiful relationship with God. They're they're made to be with him. But because of human sin, they're thrown out, they're driven out of the garden because an unholy people cannot live with a holy God. And so we're born outside of the garden. We we, we find ourselves living separate and away from God. We're, We're kind of peering over the fence into the garden. We want to be in there. We want to be with God, but we don't belong there. And sometimes we, we even just walk away, we resist God. But Jesus came to restore us, to bring us back to God. We speak of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. He comes from God's presence into our presence so that we can be one with God. He makes that possible. That's what he's doing on the cross. See, we're this unholy people, so Jesus takes on our unholiness, our sin, and he deals with it. He, he gets rid of it 
so that we can come together with God. We can come into his presence because of what Jesus has done. This is, this is God's great offer to us. It's what Jesus calls the great treasure. So have you found it? Have you said yes to that promise? We receive God's promises by faith. And so we receive this promise by faith. We receive it when we acknowledge that we need it, that we're sinners, and we give that sin to Jesus and trust that Jesus has dealt with it. Have you done that? Have you trusted that you can have life with God because of Jesus? If you have, then you have this incredible inheritance with Christ. You see, the promised land was incredibly special for God's people. It was a place of rest, but it was a temporary rest. We see that sin invaded that place too and corrupted and sabotaged their life there. And so God offers this other great promised land. In Hebrews 4, he speaks about a rest that Christ gives us with God that lasts forever, life with him in the new heavens, an eternal peace if you've received Christ, then that is your inheritance. That is God's promise to you. 1 Peter 1, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, God has this promised land for you. It's there. And the God who kept his promises in Joshua will keep that promise to you. So we have this future promise. But the glorious thing is that the future bleeds into the present. Eternal life starts now. See, in Scripture we're told that we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1 or 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. So the blessings that God offers are not just for the future. The promises that he has are also for now. It's like God has this great treasure chest and there's a whole bunch that we're going to inherit later on, but he's grabbing some of them now and he's handing them to us. But are we fully experiencing that grace now? See, sometimes I think that we don't experience that to its fullness because we lack faith or we disobey. I mean, take it just at a real simple practical level. God promises us a spiritual family, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we may not fully experience that because we don't prioritise gathering together as God's people. So, so we miss out on that. Or perhaps we, we are coming along, but we're too guarded to open ourselves up to other people, so we're, we're not experiencing the fullness of the family God is offering us. Or just take the blessing of the Spirit of God. See, it's not just that Jesus comes from God's presence to, to enable us to live with God. God goes further than that. God comes into us through the Holy Spirit. God lives within us. We have God's presence within us. This extraordinary thing, God working within our lives and our souls to change us. And as we receive this, we experience the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
These are God's promises to his people. These are the blessings that he loves to give out to his people. But I wonder if we don't always experience as much of this as we could. You see, Ephesians 4 says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can almost sort of stifle what the Spirit is doing. Sometimes that can be by disobedience. We, we know that God is pressing something on us, but we ignore it. We try to push it away. That grieves the Spirit. Or we might do it by being lazy. So I know for myself that when I'm really pressing and, and pursuing God's grace in my life, I do see growth and change, but it's also disruptive. I start giving away more money or I start being more disciplined in the way I use my time or, or whatever it is. It's not as comfortable as I might like. And so it's easy to choose mediocrity, but then not to fully experience what God has for us. Or think about how God promises us his spiritual gifts. We're told in Corinthians that to each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God, God has given each one of us these spectacular things that we can do, important things that we can do. But we might not experience that fully either because we're just too self-absorbed and we just want to focus on ourselves or we're too timid. We don't trust the grace that God has given us. And so we don't get to fully experience what God has, what he's going to offer us. So I see all of these things where perhaps we're not pressing as far as we could and we're not experiencing the fullness of God's grace for us. In fact, sometimes I feel like we, we uh, don't even see his blessings when they're coming to us. We, we don't even recognise what he's doing. See, sometimes we feel like God is holding out on his blessings. To hear that he's this God who's giving us all of this treasure feels a bit strange because we don't feel like he's doing that. Perhaps you're praying for health and God's never answered that prayer the way you think he should. Perhaps you're praying for a spouse or praying for a child and it's a good prayer to pray but God doesn't give it to you. Or perhaps you're praying that someone that you love will become a Christian and it doesn't happen. And, and you're saying, why won't God do this? And yet it may be that God is doing something, something different to what you expect. In a couple of weeks' time after Easter, we're going to start a book called 2 Corinthians. And in it, the Apostle Paul talks constantly about how he suffers. He has persecution. He feels weak. But far from being depressed by this, he uses this. He, he's discovered that God is actually working in this. And so he says, in my weakness, I discovered God's strength. And so he started to see all of these circumstances in a different way. God doesn't promise us comfort or an easy life, but he does promise to do things in our life, to work through every circumstance. And sometimes we may be missing what he is doing because we're held back by frustration or bitterness or a sense that he's not doing what I want him to do. I've been reflecting on this. Some, some of the times we might feel like you know, we kind of have a thorn in the flesh. That's what Paul called it. He, he had this thing that was frustrating him for, for a long time. 
And I resonate with that. There's things that I've struggled with for years, decades. And I've had this creeping sensation recently that perhaps I've almost wasted these years because I'm constantly saying, God, can you just get rid of this thing? When actually he wants to do something with it. In my weakness, he wants to show his strength. He's promising me something else. I don't want to waste that. I want to open the things that he has for me. Ephesians 3 says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So I wonder, could he do more in our lives than we're giving him credit for? There's a great scene in the first Star Wars. <laughs> I'm so excited to get to quote Star Wars. But <laughs> you'll remember in New Hope, uh, Luke Skywalker is trying to convince Han Solo to help rescue Princess Leia. Uh, and Han's a bit sceptical about this, but Luke assures him, look, it's going to be worth it. Listen, listen if, you, if, you wanna, if you were to rescue her, the reward would be what, says Han? Well, there'd be more wealth than you can imagine. Then Han says, I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit. It's a great line. Can we imagine quite a bit of God's grace? He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He can do profound and strange things in our lives that we can't even fathom. He can transform horrible things into good things. Are we willing to trust that? Are we willing to, like Paul, press on to make his grace our own? As we finish, I May it be our prayer that we have the faith of someone like Caleb. Well, Caleb had a very difficult life in lots of ways. I mean, he goes to this promised land when he's 40. He sees how wonderful it is and then he's shut out for 45 years. I mean, how hard would that have been? He knew how good it was. He tasted the fruit, we're told. But he doesn't get to go back and he's wandering around the wilderness for decades through no fault of his own. He didn't do the wrong thing, but he has to wait all of this time. The best years of his life, gone, wasted. It would have been easy for him to become embittered, to lose faith. God's promises were stretching further and further, but he still held on to it. He still trusted that God would keep his promises, and so he obeyed, and so he saw them. And yet it's not... The faith that matters, it's the God we put our faith in that matters. It'd be nice to be like Caleb, but it's not actually, that's not what it's about. It's about trusting the God that Caleb trusted. That's what Jesus said. The apostles said to the Lord in Luke 17, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. No, Caleb is a man of faith who trusts God and sees through that. He has what David Jackman calls spiritual vision, which means, he says, being able to see a situation from God's perspective and so be able to go forward into that situation confident that God's purposes will indeed be fulfilled, trusting him and expecting him to work. God is faithful, so will we trust him? Will we obey him by trusting him? 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this part of Scripture. At first it might seem a bit dry when we open it, but just yet again you've shown us that there's so much in here, there's so much wisdom and truth that you have for us and life-giving words. Lord, um, we pray that uh, we will trust you. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your promises, that you've, the whole Bible is the record of your promise-keeping for hundreds of years. You have kept your promises and you continue to keep your promises. In 2 Corinthians we're told that all your promises are yes in Christ. That he is the fulfilment of all things and the guarantee that anything you have offered us will become ours. So Lord, help us to walk in faith, to obey by trusting. Lord, I pray for anyone here really all of us, who might be experiencing frustration or doubt or uh, we're feeling bitter because the, the things we're holding on to you haven't come through yet. Help us to hold on to you and to trust your working in it. We ask this for Jesus' glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.